Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, an update on that Yang debate qualification issue, thoughts on the framing of last night's debate questions, who talked the most last night, key moments from the debate, and what's happening at tonight's debate. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Before we get into debate stuff, here's an update on Yang's qualifications for the September and October debates. Right after I hit the publish button on yesterday's show, I saw the news that the DNC had rejected one of the four polls that Yang was relying on for his math in terms of qualifying for those later debates. That means he only has three polls at 2% or higher and therefore does not yet qualify for the September and October debates. To be super clear, yes, Yang will be on stage tonight, and it's also very likely that he will get a fourth qualifying poll for September pretty soon anyway, but one of the core polls he was counting on got yanked by the DNC. This news did not affect Senator Cory Booker since he wasn't relying on that poll for his qualification, and in fact has more than four qualifying polls anyway. Here's what the DNC wrote in an email to candidates, quote, On July 11th, NBC and the Wall Street Journal released the results of a national survey that included a candidate support question for the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. Eight days later, on July 19th, NBC, in participation with SurveyMonkey, released the results of another national survey with a candidate support question. A particularly important rule in our debate framework is the requirement the candidates' initial qualifying polls be conducted by different sponsors, or, if by the same sponsor, in different geographies. End quote. The Yang campaign responded by saying that the first poll, since it was co-sponsored by the Wall Street Journal, which is itself a different qualified polling organization than NBC, means that those are two separate polls, despite NBC participating in both. Well, the DNC disagrees, and the DNC gets to settle this, so that's that. The main point this raises is that the DNC has sometimes been cagey about saying whether a given poll counts or not. Like, this exact question about this specific poll had been raised by journalists multiple times with no comment from the DNC. It took a candidate announcing that he had succeeded for the DNC to actually stake out its position. Now, if I may offer a gentle suggestion to the DNC. Upon the release of a new poll, simply state whether or not it counts toward qualification. It is just that simple, and it would save us a lot of headaches. Last night, the first set of 10 Democratic candidates gathered in Detroit for CNN's debate. As I mentioned yesterday, the key thing to watch for was conflict. And whoa, was there conflict. Throughout the night, this debate differed from what we saw in June in key ways. But for this first segment, I want to get into the issue of framing. In other words, how the moderators framed questions and set up conflict in order to drive the discussion. I was grappling with this all night, actually. It struck me that there was a much better mix of candidates' ability to actually speak. The talking time mix seemed far better, and we will get to that in the next segment. But at the same time, the moderators kept setting up arguments by framing questions in bizarre ways, apparently trying to get a rise out of people. Right after the debate, I mentioned this on Twitter, and listener Ben Silver chimed in also on Twitter with a very helpful statement. He wrote, quote, It's worth differentiating between the format, good, and the wild impulse of the moderators to instigate fights between candidates and regurgitating GOP talking points rather than focusing on actual issues, bad, end quote. What he's getting out there is what I needed to make sense of this debate. 
the moderators did a good job, or at least a better job than the June debate moderators, at enforcing rules and calling on a variety of people to talk. That's the format. And the moderator's ability to grab a candidate and bring them into the conversation was a good thing overall because it was inclusive. It was bewildering at times when candidates would be plopped into the middle of a fight that they hadn't picked, and also the 60-second time limits eliminated a lot of substantive debate, but still, you've got to make some concessions to the fact that there are 10 people on stage, and they all deserve some amount of attention. In my opinion, the fact that the moderators used their rapid-fire format, jumping around to different candidates regularly, was fair to the lower polling candidates, even though it had costs for the overall quality of the discussion. You may disagree, and that's fine, but anyway, let's move on to the next topic. Okay, so that's the format, but then there's the frame, and that's what had so many people, myself included, so very annoyed. From the very beginning, the moderators framed questions to stoke conflict or repeat what are literally Republican talking points about Democratic policy. Here's what Jake Tapper said in his very first question, quote, Let's start the debate with the number one issue for Democratic voters, health care. And Senator Sanders, let's start with you. You support Medicare for All, which would eventually take private health insurance away from more than 150 million Americans in exchange for government-sponsored health care for everyone. Congressman Delaney just referred to it as bad policy, and previously he has called the idea political suicide that will just get President Trump re-elected. What do you say to Congressman Delaney? End quote. And of course, Sanders replied simply, quote, you're wrong, end quote. Now, of course, he had much more to say, but that was his core response. And after I slept on it, it's obvious why he would respond that way. What you're wrong means here is a reference both to what Sanders thinks about Delaney's comments, but also about Tapper's framing of the question in terms of taking health care away. That's the wrong way to think about this issue. So Sanders went on to reframe by talking about the systemic problems of the American healthcare system as the actual problem. By pointing that out, he was saying, let's not talk about taking away private healthcare. Let's talk about what's broken and whether my method for fixing it is actually viable. This is a great example of framing and reframing. If the moderator asks something that is framed in a way you disagree with, you just reframe it in terms that are more favorable either to your position or the debate in general. But the CNN anchors continue this pattern throughout the night. Much later in the same section, here's another way Tapper framed a question. Quote, I want to bring in Mayor Buttigieg on the topic of whether or not the middle class should pay higher taxes in exchange for guaranteed health care and the elimination of insurance premiums. How do you respond, Mayor? End quote. So Buttigieg rightly reframed the question to be about what the discussion actually was on stage, which was Medicare for all versus a public option in Obamacare. But he was quickly interrupted and then Tapper jumped in again with this, quote, just 15 seconds on the clarification. You are willing to raise taxes on middle-class Americans in order to have universal coverage with the disappearance of insurance premiums, yes or no, end quote. So Tapper here has seized on two key complaints about the various Democratic proposals around health care, the issues of how it affects private health insurance plans, plus how to pay for it, and frame them in a way that, well, if nothing else, definitely got people talking. 
the candidates do need to be prepared to deal with this stuff in the general election. Though I think many viewers were essentially asking, um, how come we're trying to make the case now to Republicans during the Democratic primary when the stage is full of Democrats? You know? And then there was yet another common frame, which was to ask a candidate about somebody else on the stage who may or may not have actually attacked them. For instance, here's Tapper later on in the same section. Quote, I want to bring in Marianne Williamson. Ms. Williamson, how do you respond to the criticism from Senator Warren that you're not willing to fight for Medicare for all? End quote. Wait, what? Like, which criticism is that? When was it made? When did she call out Williamson? Give us a citation here, Tapper. Oh, okay, I found it. I went through the transcript and found it. Here's what he's referring to, and it has nothing to do with Williamson. It is, in fact, a generic critique of a bunch of people on that stage. Okay, reading from Tapper earlier when he was questioning Senator Amy Klobuchar. Quote, Senator Warren at the beginning of the night said that Democrats cannot win the White House with small ideas and spinelessness. In the last debate, she said that politicians who are not supporting Medicare for all simply lack the will to fight for it. End quote. Yeah, all right. Anyway, this is how Williamson responded. Quote, I don't know if Senator Warren said that about me specifically. I admire very much what Senator Warren has said and what Bernie has said. End quote. She did go on longer, but that's the core point. She was saying, hey, Jake, that frame doesn't make any sense. I'm not aware of the allegation you're making. And to be frank, I think Tapper knew he was just trying to pick a fight here. That's definitely what CNN's overall strategy was, but this framing thing was irresponsible because it promoted conflict at the expense of dialogue. And that's no good for anybody, CNN, right? Now, the final frame that bothered me was, how do I put this delicately, the total BS frame. Here's how moderator Dana Bash pivoted the discussion to immigration. Quote, Mayor Buttigieg, you're in favor of getting rid of the law that makes it a crime to come across the U.S. border illegally. Why wouldn't that just encourage more illegal immigration? End quote. So, look, this is a willful misrepresentation of a topic that we have discussed on this podcast at great length and that the candidates got into in the first night of the June debates. It has to do with Julian Castro's plan to get rid of Section 1325 of Federal Criminal Code. What that means is it would change the nature of the crime of illegal border crossing from being a criminal offense to being a civil offense, which is exactly what it was until 1929. Still a crime, just dealt with differently within the court system. Bash must understand that because it was already discussed in the previous debate. Yet the frame was not about changing the type of crime that an illegal border crossing would be. No, the frame was, and I quote again, you are in favor of getting rid of the law that makes it a crime to come across the U.S. border illegally. End quote. That is not Buttigieg's position at all, and Bash knows it. Tapper knows it. Everybody knows it. Buttigieg began his response by pointing that out. Quote, when I am president, illegally crossing the border will still be illegal. We can argue over the finer points of which parts of this ought to be handled by civil law and which parts ought to be handled by criminal law, but we've got a crisis on our hands. End quote. Okay, so let's wrap up the segment and move on. But the important thing to take away here is that part of why we saw so much conflict last night was because of the way the questions were framed. At times, the framing was dishonest. 
At other times, it was designed simply to provoke conflict, which, let's face it, is a totally reasonable thing when you're having, you know, a debate. There needs to be conflict for a debate to work. But watch for this again tomorrow and try to notice how the moderators intentionally frame questions in a way that attempts to provoke the candidates. The frame can provoke debate without being dishonest. And I sincerely hope that CNN does just a little adjusting to remove the dishonesty. The Election Ride Home is sponsored by a great podcast called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts you should not miss. If you're looking to learn from the brightest minds in finance or simply want to know more about investing in a casual, fun interview format, this show is a must listen. It's hosted by Meb Faber, who is CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of his show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investing insights and ideas. So find and subscribe to The Meb Faber Show wherever you get your podcasts. That's Meb. M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. As in the June debates, several media organizations actually tallied up the amount of time that each candidate spoke while on stage. In June, there were radical disparities. For instance, on the second night of June's debate, Joe Biden got 13.6 minutes, while Andrew Yang got just three minutes. That's just plain unfair. Like, that's way, way out of whack. So the format of last night's debate included way more jumping around, with the moderators clearly trying to bring more candidates into each part of the debate, whether they wanted it or not. But did it work? Well, in a word, yes. And it also had the side effect of cutting off a ton of candidates who otherwise could have run away with these very long and thus inequitable discussions pulling more time to themselves. The equity of time distribution last night was much better, though certainly not perfect but we didn't see any examples last night of the Yang-Biden problem where one candidate got more than four times the amount of speaking time of another. Now, here's the breakdown from the Washington Post. Note that different media organizations had slightly different numbers, but, you know, this one seemed as good as any. Okay, Warren and Sanders spoke the most, each with more than 17 minutes. Buttigieg was next at more than 14 minutes. Then everybody else was at roughly nine minutes to 11 minutes. Technically, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper spoke the least with 8.8 minutes. That means comparing the highest speaker, Warren, at 17.9 minutes with the lowest, Hickenlooper, Warren did have double the time of the lowest candidate. But in the previous set of debates, Biden had quadruple and a half the time of the lowest candidate. So at least on the first night, this debate format gave a better mix of time to candidates than what we saw in June. One of the fun things about doing a debate wrap-up show is that you get to play some clips, and last night's debate was full of good moments, so let's just play a few to look back on key moments in this debate. First up, Senator Elizabeth Warren had many big moments, but I'm going to pick out just two. 
The first one came in the context of that thing about Delaney saying that Medicare for all is political suicide. Here is part of Warren's response. Let's be clear about this. We are the Democrats. We are not about trying to take away health care from anyone. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. And we should stop using Republican talking points in order to talk with each other about how to best provide that health care. And here's the second Warren clip, complete with the Jake Tapper framing right up front. Listen in. Senator Warren, you make it a point to say that you're a capitalist. Is that your way of convincing voters that you might be a safer choice than Senator Sanders? No, it is my way of talking about I know how to fight and I know how to win. I took on giant banks and I beat them. I took on um, Wall Street and CEOs and their lobbyists and their lawyers and I beat them. I took on a popular Republican incumbent senator and I beat him. I remember when people said Barack Obama couldn't get elected. Shoot, I remember when people said Donald Trump couldn't get elected. But here's where we are. I get it. There is a lot at stake and people are scared. But we can't choose a candidate we don't believe in just because we're too scared to do anything else. And we can't ask other people to vote for a candidate we don't believe in. Democrats win when we figure out what is right and we get out there and fight for it. I am not afraid. And for Democrats to win, You can't be afraid either. Congressman Delaney, your response? (laughs) Next up, Senator Bernie Sanders had a bunch of fiery exchanges, and here's one that involved Representative Tim Ryan. Tapper speaks first, then Sanders, then Ryan jumps in. Listen in. If Medicare for All is enacted, there are more than 600,000 union members here in Michigan who would be forced to give up their private health care plans. Now, I understand that it would provide universal coverage, but... Can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Well, two things. They will be better because Medicare for All is comprehensive. It covers all health care needs for senior citizens. It will finally include dental care, hearing aids, and eyeglasses. But you don't know Second that. of all. You don't know that, Second Bernie. of all. We'll come I, to you in a second, I do know. I wrote the damn bill. Second of all, many of our union brothers and sisters, nobody more pro-union than me up here, are now paying high deductibles and co-payments. And when we do Medicare for all, instead of having the company putting money into health care, they can get decent wage increases, which they're not getting today. Now, incidentally, this was apparently a rehearsed line, as the Sanders campaign immediately sent out an email after he said it, encouraging supporters to get a sticker reading, I wrote the damn bill, in exchange for a contribution. That is quite similar to the Harris thing with her busing-related t-shirt that was available for sale immediately. Okay, next up, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. This one actually came just after Williamson's response to Tapper, asking about whether she would fight for Medicare for all and was being critiqued by Warren or whatever. Anyway, after Williamson's answer, Buttigieg jumped in. Listen in. Mayor Buttigieg, It is time to stop worrying about what the Republicans will say. Look, if if, if it's true that if we embrace a far-left agenda, they're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. If we embrace a conservative agenda, you know what they're going to do? 
they're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. So let's just stand up for the right policy, go out there and defend it. That's the policy I'm putting forward, not because I think it's the right triangulation between Republicans here and Democrats there, because I think it's the right answer for people like my mother-in-law, who is here, <clears throat> whose life was saved by the ACA, but who is still far too vulnerable to the fact that the insurance industry Thank you, does not care about Thanks, And next, here is Representative Tim Ryan. Again, notice the framing from Dana Bash at the beginning, putting him in opposition to Sanders, when really they actually agree on this topic overall, and Ryan takes pains to point that out. Listen in. Congressman Ryan, we are here in Michigan, where there are about 180,000 workers in auto manufacturing. Your state of Ohio has around 96,000 workers in that industry. Senator Sanders is co-sponsoring a bill that would eliminate new gas-powered car sales by 2040. Given the number of auto manufacturing workers in your state, how concerned are you about Senator Sanders' plan? Well, if we get our act together, we won't have to worry about it. I, I, my plan is to create a chief manufacturing officer so we could actually start making things in the United States again that would pull the government, the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, work with the private sector, work with investors, emerging tech companies to dominate the electric vehicle market. China dominates it now, 50 to 60 percent. I want us to dominate the battery market, make those here in the United States and cut the workers in on the deal. The charging stations, solar panels, same thing. China dominates 60% of the solar panel market. So this person will work in the White House, report directly to me, and we're gonna start making things again. But you cannot get there on climate unless we talk about agriculture. We need to convert our industrial agriculture system over to a sustainable and regenerative agriculture system that actually sequesters carbon into the soil. And you can go ask, you can go ask Gabe Brown and, and Alan Williams, who actually make money off of regenerative agriculture. So we can move away from all the subsidies that we're giving the farmers. They haven't made a profit in five years, and we can start getting good food into our schools and into our communities. That's gonna drive healthcare down. That's another part of the healthcare conversation that we didn't even have. How do we start Thank talking you, about health Ryan. instead of just disease care? Thank you, Senator Sanders, your response? And finally, author Marianne Williamson on the Flint water crisis. This one is already kind of a meme known as the dark psychic force clip. Dana Bash speaks first after Klobuchar had just finished her remarks. Listen in. What's your response on the Flint water crisis? My response on the Flint water crisis is that Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. I was recently in Denmark, South Carolina, where it is, there is a lot of talk about it being the next Flint. We, we have an administration that has gutted the Clean Water Act. We have communities, particularly communities of color and disadvantaged communities all over this country who are suffering from environmental injustice. I assure you, I lived in Gross Point. What happened in Flint would not have happened in Gross Point. This is part of the dark underbelly of American society. The racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us. And Thank you very much, Ms. Williamson. Thank you. 
Okay, last of today, let's briefly talk about tonight. The second night of the debate will again air on CNN at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, just like last night, using the various CNN apps and the CNN website. Also, although the event was, and technically remains, a two-hour event, it actually ran for two hours and 43 minutes last night, so I guess we expect that to probably happen again? I don't know. So, plan your snacks and bathroom breaks accordingly, because this probably will go as much as one hour longer than it's supposed to. Okay, so that's the technical stuff. On the debate bingo side, do make sure you're following the Twitter account at Election Podcast if you want the official rulings on bingo stuff. Last night, thanks to help from my wife Rochelle, I actually managed to notice when each square was filled in and tweet about it there. So if you're playing debate bingo, you might want to follow that account on Twitter to help make sure you've got your squares right. And by the way, tomorrow or the next day on the show, I will do a roundup on the bingo cards as their own topic. That would be an analysis thing, not a promo thing. And last, content. Tonight is Biden night. Tonight is all the candidates of color night. Tonight we now understand the CNN format and we'll see whether candidates make use of it. I didn't see CNN explicitly reducing anyone's time on night one, so I really wonder whether on night two, any candidates will start pushing back hard to try to see whether CNN will actually blink and reduce their time. Also, expect everybody to attack Biden, whether that is via the moderator's questions themselves or the actual candidates just mixing it up. And expect him to hit back hard because he has been heads down on debate prep. One final, final note, I have linked to a few wrap-ups of the debate in case you want to read somebody else's coherent thoughts on what went down. Check out the last links in the show notes. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, folks, long show today. Thank you for sticking around. I am heading right back to Debate HQ and won't make this any longer than it needs to be. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to y'all tonight on Twitter and tomorrow on the show. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.